Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Patty, Dan Patty Daniels excuse me, and myself, Scott Splavik. Now here's Patty with our first story. Thank you. Well, here's what everybody's talking about from 70s to teens. Region sees large temperature drop, written for us by Grace Kinnikuff of the Times. There's a photograph of two young women, exercise science major Farah Cracklow and digital media production and PR major Sydney Horseman study media communications in the Rogalski Center Courtyard on the St. Ambrose University campus on Tuesday in Davenport. Students took advantage of the unusually warm weather to study and socialize under the sun. And these young ladies look very, very happy with their books. The drop in temperature, this is, uh, yes, the drop in temperature on Wednesday, along with possible snow, is not expected to stay long. After a nice, warm, and sunny 70 degree day, the temperature is expected to drop down to 17 degrees Tuesday night. Yes, and it did. The wind chill is likely to make it feel like zero, said Dave Cousins, meteorologist at the National Weather Service, Quad Cities. It's a pretty impressive temperature drop, Cousins says. We are taking, uh, we are talking a 50, 50, 50 to 60 degree temperature drop. There is also a chance of snow overnight, Cousins said, bringing up to half inch and could create some slick spots during the morning commute. The past few days, the Quad Cities has experienced above normal temperatures. According to the NWS Quad Cities Facebook, the temperature in Moline broke the high daily temperature at 74 degrees. The Quad Cities first broke the record Monday at around 73 degrees. It's been quite the roller coaster here, Cousins said. The cold temperatures are not expected to last long, Cousins said, with Thursday seeing the sun come back out and daytime temperatures reaching back up into the low to the high 50s. Thursday has a high of 49 degrees and a low of 34, and Friday has a high of 53 degrees and a low of 39. Saturday temperatures will climb back into the 60s with a high of 66 degrees and sunny. Sunday could reach a high of 73 degrees with a low of 49. There is a chance of rain Sunday night into Monday. Top story on the Quad City Times today, barn fire deemed arson. It's written by Gretchen Teske of the Quad City Times. The fire at the former Rock Island Livestock Auction Barn has been deemed an arson. About 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 24th, the Rock Island Fire Department responded to the barn at 534 34th Avenue for a large structure fire. Multiple fire departments, including the Rock Island Arsenal, Moline, and Davenport, fought the fire due to the size of the property, the department said in a Tuesday press release. Additional apparatus and personnel from Kelowna, Coal Valley, Andalusia, Rapid City, Port Byron, Coin Center, Reynolds, 
Illinois City and Carbon Cliff Barstow were utilized to provide water tanker operations to provide additional water to suppress the fire. Medic EMS, Moline Air 12, and Mid-American were on the scene to provide additional support. The fire was contained to the property, but the barn was ultimately destroyed. Of the cattle in the barn, 25 were safely rescued, one died in the fire, and one escaped during the firefighting efforts. The missing cow was located Monday night. An investigation by the Rock Island Fire Marshal has determined the fire was set deliberately. The incident is under investigation by the Fire Marshal and the Crime Investigations Division of the Rock Island Police Department. As of Tuesday morning, the Rock Island Public Works Department was working with the Fire Department to extinguish a large amount of hay still smoldering on the property. It is estimated that the hay will smolder for up to 10 days, but the Fire Department is working to minimize the impact of smoke on residents. The Rock Island Livestock Auction Barn was built in the early 1930s, with the first cattle auction taking place January the 25th, 1936. Anyone with information on the fire is encouraged to contact either the Fire Marshal's office at area code 309-732-2803, the Rock Island Police Department at area code 309-732-2677, or submit a tip through Crime Stoppers of the Quad Cities at area code 309-762-9500 or p3tips.com. Patty? Murder Trial Begins. Written for us by Anthony Watt of QC Online. The trial of a Rock Island man accused of a fatal August shooting began Tuesday. Glenn J. Evans, Jr., 19, Rock Island, faces a single count of first-degree murder, according to court records. Authorities allege he killed Xavier A. McNair, 19, on August 19, 2023, at a house party in the 2000 block of 33rd Street in Rock Island. Proceedings began Tuesday afternoon with initial statements from Assistant State's Attorney Jesse Brockway and Kelvin McCabe of the Rock Island County Public Defender's Office. Such statements outline what attorneys think evidence presented at the trial will show. Brockway argued security camera footage literally recorded Evans standing over McNair and shooting him. McNair's body had multiple gunshot wounds, many of them in his back, the prosecutor said. Investigators think a bullet that struck the back of his head and another that entered his abdomen and lodged in his spine were the ones that killed him. During his statements, McCabe argued the case before the court is whether or not his client acted in self-defense. The, uh, the evidence will show the two were quarreling that morning over a gun Evans accused McNair of stealing from him, McCabe said. McNair, McCabe said, shot first, wounding Evans. The entire encounter unfolded in a matter of seconds, McCabe said, and Evans did not get shot, leave, and then return and shoot McNair. Investigators believe Evans took a gun that McNair dropped off after dropped after he was shot, according to previous reporting. McCabe argued that 
that was evidence of self-defense. Evans had already been shot. He did not want to be shot again. McNair died on the way to the hospital, police said previously. Evans, shot in the leg, was treated and released. Both attorneys made their arguments to Judge Daniel P. Dalton rather than a jury. Evans opted for a bench trial, which means Dalton, not jurors, will decide his culpability once testimony is concluded. The Rock Island County uh, State Attorney's Office initially charged Evans on August 21st with second-degree murder, according to previous reporting. Underlying that charge was the allegation that Evans thought the circumstances he found himself in would justify the killing or exonerate him, uh, according to previous reporting. Prosecutors allege that belief was not reasonable. The state's attorney's office amended the charge to first-degree murder on August 25th, according to previous reporting. When Brockway and McCabe finished their opening statements Tuesday afternoon, Rock Island Police Detective Luke Sarah took the stand as the first prosecution witness. Sarah spent much of his time on the stand answering questions about the security camera video as Brockway played it for Dalton in the courtroom. The video showed the front porch and stairs of the residence, as well as the yard and the nearby street. Throughout the video, people, including two that Sarah identified as Evans and McNair, interact with each other and others at the party. During the final parts of the video shown on Tuesday, there is the sound of gunfire. People scream, then some run out of the house. One of them is the person Sarah identified as McNair. He falls down the porch stairs to the concrete path where he remains prone. The person Sarah identified as Evans follows and stands over McNair, fires several more shots at the prone body, grabs something that Sarah told the court was thought to be a firearm from near the body. Evans then walks through the yard out of view. Sarah's testimony Tuesday occurred while Brockway questioned him. The defense has not yet cross-examined the detective. Dalton halted proceedings about 3 p.m. The trial is expected to resume Wednesday, beginning with further testimony from Sarah. Evans is the son of Rock Island County Republican Central Committee Chairman Glenn J. Evans, Sr., according to previous reporting. The lemonade stand sets opening. Student-run restaurant takes space in Davenport. It's written by Gretchen Teske of the Quad City Times. For the last 10 years, customers have enjoyed the food at Zeke's Island Cafe, a staple of downtown Davenport. Beginning next week, that will all change when a new restaurant, The Lemonade Stand, opens in the space. The move seems sudden, considering Zeke's downtown location was open for business just last week. And it is sudden, Lemonade Stand's owner Yasmin Morales said. For the last three years, she has been the manager at Zeke's downtown and was poised to become manager of the two Bettendorf locations as well, she said. In December, an investor spoke with Zeke's owner, Jason Stewart and Morales, wanting to be part of the team. After talking through the standards and processes at Zeke's, the idea came about to start a new kind of restaurant where interns would be running the show. With Stewart wanting to keep his focus on the Bettendorf locations, Morales stepped in. 
All of a sudden, I'm waking up and I own my own restaurant, Morales said. The new and innovative restaurant will have a bayou barbecue theme, she said, with a focus on small batch meals to ensure the menu stays fresh. Items customers can look for forward to, in, to include Dr. Pepper barbecue meatballs, po' boy style sandwiches, and country shrimp boil plates and platters. The goal is for the menu to be simple enough it allows culinary students to showcase their own featured items, Morales said. In the kitchen, culinary students from the area will be working paid internships to allow them a chance to get experience under their belt. They will be given opportunities to modify recipes, create features, and apply the topics and te techniques they are studying with a hands-on experience. At the front of the house, business students will have a chance to try out entrepreneurship, too. Apprentices will work directly with the manager to learn the business from a management and startup standpoint. An Augustana graduate, Morales said she had an emphasis in entrepreneurship in school, but there were hardly any low-risk opportunities to get her feet wet. Students will learn the ins and outs of management, including also how to order supplies, communicate with vendors, and get the real-world experience that will help them in the long run. Morales has already reached out to area colleges who are excited about the new endeavor and have partnerships in the works, she said. As part of a test run, Morales said the new restaurant will be open this Friday for a Quad City Storm watch party, as was Zeke's tradition. Starting next week, the lemonade stand will host a lunch buffet where staff will try out the new menu and receive feedback from customers. Despite the changes, fans of Zeke's Hawaiian Huli Huli Chicken and Island Tacos do not have to worry. They'll still be available in Bentendorf. Zeke's Island Express at 842 Middle Road in Duck Creek Plaza and Zeke's Island Cafe at 5117 Competition Drive near TBK Sports Complex will remain open. The menus at those locations will remain tried and true with hours from 11 a.m. until 8.30 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Owners Jason and Jessica Stewart started their restaurants in February 2014 on Kimberly Road. The pair worked together to develop a menu with the feedback given by the guests in real time on a daily basis. The beginning was simple. Jason, Chef Stew, made food each day inspired by suggestions from patrons. There was no cash register, only a jar on the counter. The donation jar was filled with random amounts of financial gratitude, which was used to buy food the next day for the newest creations. After a few weeks, the simple menu was committed to a freshly printed chalkboard wall. The duo has opened, uh, excuse me, has operated out of eight separate buildings over the years. I learn huge lessons about life and business each time we finish a new project, but it always circles back to community, James Stewart said in the news release. Every time we move or grow, we meet a whole new group of people that will join the tribe and become our new regulars. Patty? Trial underway in death of deputy. Written for us by Lisa Hammer of the, um, well... QC Times. 
Cambridge. The Granite City man charged with murder in the April 29, 2022 death of Knox County Deputy Nicholas Weiss went on trial Tuesday in a Henry County courtroom. Defense attorney Bruce Carmen told the jury that Dalen K. Richardson, 24, wasn't trying to kill anybody when his Ford Taurus struck and killed Deputy Weiss on Route 150 near Alpha in Henry County. He was not trying to kill anybody. He was not trying to hurt anybody, said Carmen in his opening statement to the jury. He's just trying to get away and he does something stupid. Richardson faces four counts of murder in connection with the traffic death where Deputy Weiss was laying down stop sticks to end the pursuit from a Galesburg gas station where Richardson was spotted with a firearm. In her opening statement, the Henry County State Attorney outlined the pursuit and said that at the close of evidence, she would be asking the jury to find Richardson guilty of murdering Deputy Weist. She noted the Galesburg police officer who initiated the pursuit of Richardson saw him fire a gun through his rear window and three shell casings and a gun were later recovered. Charges were later amended to add two new counts of murder, including the allegation that the deceased officer had been performing his official duties, which would enhance the penalty for a conviction from 20 to 60 years to natural life in prison. Also on Tuesday, Lieutenant Carl Kramer of the Knox County Sheriff's Department testified he had been the one to deputy, excuse me, to authorize Deputy Weiss to deploy the stop sticks. He said that happened 18 to 20 minutes after Weiss shift technically ended at 8 a.m., but the officer had never advised a 10:42 indicating he was done or off shift. Further. He said officers are generally paid overtime when they work beyond their shift. Weiss was one to bring up the suggestion of stop sticks and to say that he was in the vicinity of the pursuit, Kramer said. Officer Jared Tapscott of the Galesburg Police Department testified regarding his pursuit of Richardson's vehicle, saying it traveled at a fairly constant speed of 100 to 110 miles per hour. Before they left Knox County, he saw gunshots fired through the rear windshield. Officer Tapscott radioed that an officer was down before getting out of his squad to chase down Richardson when he left with another officer to go and check on Deputy Weist. He did not observe any signs of life in the officer. Carmen asked for a standing objection to the mention of gunshots being fired during the pursuit in Knox County. Judge Norma Koslerich noted Carmen had brought up two similar motions in limine during pretrial hearings, and she had issued oral and written rulings denying both. Jurors also watched um, squad car videos taken by Tapscott of the chase from Galesburg and Deputy Weist himself. The latter showed the officer putting out the stop sticks and just seconds later, the Richardson vehicle blowing into them in what most must have been just seconds before the impact. The jury also heard several stipulations, uh, including the testimony of Henry County 
uh, coroner, Melissa Watkins, who pronounced Weiss dead at the scene, and Amanda Humans of Peoria, the, patholo- the pathologist who conducted the autopsy, which found Weiss' death was caused by multiple blunt force trauma consistent with being struck by a vehicle. Richardson also faces charges in Knox County, including attempted murder. From Bentendorf, new staff tax rate increase proposed. Council hears more on FY25 budget. This is written by Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Bentendorf council members are still wrestling with how much to raise the tax levy rate this year to fund six firefighters and other new staff members. Council members heard more on the city's upcoming fiscal year budget on Monday in a new special budget meeting that's now required by the state. The City Council will decide in the next month whether to increase the tax levy rate by $0.22 or by $0.46 per $1,000 in taxable value in the next fiscal year. The City's fiscal 2024 levy rate was $12.65 per $1,000 of value. There will be two public hearings on the City's budget, one March 25th and another on April 6th. City of Bettendorf residents can calculate how the changes are likely to impact their city property taxes online and view the city's budget presentation at bentendorf.org slash departments slash finance slash budget. The primary cause for the proposed increase is six new firefighters, city staff said. The new firefighter personnel costs are funded for the first three years through a FEMA-administered SAFER grant. As part of the grant, the city must commit to fund the positions into the future. The city is also proposing hiring a fire marshal after the city council promoted the previous fire marshal, Troy Said, to lead the department as chief. A new fire marshal would perform inspections and certify buildings. Together with the six additional firefighters, the new positions will require a minimum 36 cent increase to the tax levy rate over the next three years, city staff said. The residents of the new increase, excuse me, the rest of the increase would go toward other new positions or promotions, including moving three police officers to sergeant, library programming and outreach assistant, Parks and Recreation Director. Kim Kidwell has served as the city's Culture and Recreation Director overseeing the city's Family Museum and the Parks and Recreation Department, but the city plans to split that role into two. Bettendorf city officials said the increase will have a very small impact on residents' tax bills when taking into account the rollback and changes to state property taxes. In March and April 2023, County assessors began mailing new assessments to property owners that showed most properties increased in value. In Bentendorf, total property values increased by more than 19%. But a state formula that limits growth in property taxes, called the rollback, which, like its name, suggests rolls back the percentage of assessed value a local government can tax, wiped away most increase in taxes for residential property. Assessed value in Bettendorf increased over 19%, Bettendorf Finance Director Jason Schatt said Monday. 
We all remember getting those assessment notices back last April from the county. There was some shell shock at some of the increases in assessed valuation, but the rollback again wiped most of that away. Increase in taxable value was limited to just 4% and most of that is from new construction. Taxable value on residential property largely decreased some 1.5%. State lawmakers made additional legislative changes to what localities could collect of property taxes. It automatically reduced Bentendorf's general fund levy rate from $7.80 per $1,000 of taxable value to $7.64 and expanded tax exemptions too. The change just from FY24 to 25 wiped away about $393 million in taxable value for Bentendorf alone equal to about $3 million in potential property tax dollars that could have gone and captured for the general fund if necessary, not to say that we would have, but I think in any other year, if we had collected, if we had taxable value more in line with what we've seen over the several years, we might be talking about a levy rate decrease this year instead of an increase, Shat said. Shat and the city said the city is also dealing with rising costs, including new four-year contracts with bargaining units with market-driven increases and expected 25 to 30 percent increase in liability insurance premiums and higher health insurance costs and vehicle equipment costs, too. Shat said those increased costs alone could have resulted in a 50-cent uh, increase in the to the tax levy rate, but with growth in taxable value, the city was able to capture and efficiencies staff was able to find. The city absorbed those increased costs for the fiscal year. Those efficiencies, which Shat gave to the council in a list, included items such as closing the family museum on Sundays, reducing chemical weed applications, virtual rather than in-person trainings, eliminating operational costs for Splash Landing and Palmer Grill, which outside groups operate or will operate, and reconfiguring a lighting project. Schatt also emphasized that Bettendorf's combined fees and operating levy rate was the lowest among 21 cities the city uses for comparisons. While the general fund levy rate would be reduced, the health insurance, liability insurance, police and fire pension, and transit levy rates would be the ones to increase. For the average Bentendorf residential home valued at $318,616, the combined impact of increased assessed value, decrease from the rollback, and an increase of $0.22 cents on the city levy tax levy rate, the annual Bentendorf taxes would increase by $14. If the city council decides to go with a 46 cent increase, the home's annual taxes would be would increase $48. For the average Bentendorf commercial property valued at $1.229 million, that combined value increase plus tax increase would be $2,358 for a 22 cent increase and $2,608 for a 46 cent increase. The city is also proposing slight increases in sewer 
21 cent increase per unit, stormwater 20 cent increase, and solid waste fees $4.32 annual increase. City Administrator Decker Plone, in a committee of the whole meeting, February 20th, urged council members to consider in its discussions of the tax levy rate that cities were facing unpredictability from the legislature on potential future property tax limitations. He said the council risks having to backtrack on its commitment to fund all six firefighters if the council decides to break up the tax levy increases and the legislature puts further limits on what property taxes cities can collect. If the city council does raise the tax levy rate to 46 cents in the next fiscal year, it could hold the money in reserves or spend on one-time projects such as city buildings and facility renovations, new parks repairing bridges, streets, or sewers, purchasing new equipment, or completing economic development projects. Patty? Thank you. It's time for the obituaries, and I'm going to just let you know, first of all, that if you want to place an obituary, please call the Quad City Times at 563-383-2284 or email obits at qctimes.com. Obituaries are paid content. <clears throat> and pendings, Vernon L. Wolf, 84, of New Liberty, Iowa, passed away Monday, February 26, at Cedar Manor Nursing Home, Tipton. Arrangements are pending at Brentley Funeral Home, Durant. William H. Hulsart, Jr., 81, of Moline, passed away Monday, February 26, at home. Cremation will be directed by Cremation Society of the Quad Cities. June E. Franklin, 81, of Davenport, passed away Sunday, February 25th, at Harmony Utica Ridge, Davenport. Cremation will be directed by Mississippi Valley Cremation and Direct Burial, Moline. Alma Madeline Tilburg, 86, of East Moline, Illinois, formerly of Davenport, passed away Monday, February 26, at Hope Creek Nursing and Rehab, East Moline. Arrangements are pending at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home, Bettendorf, Iowa. Marvell Asquith. 83, of Davenport, passed away Sunday, February 18th, at Genesis Medical Center East. Arrangements are pending at Wheeler Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island. And Charles Chuck E. DeBates, 86, of Rock Island, passed away Monday, February 26th, at home. Arrangements are pending at Esterdal Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline. And Sharon Ray Tank, July 12, 1948 to February 23, 2024. Sharon Ray Tank Waddle died unexpectedly in Iowa City on February 23rd. Visitation will be held at Beard's Funeral Home on the corner of Jersey Ridge and Kimberly Road from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 29th. The funeral will be 11 a.m. Friday, March 1st, at Zion Lutheran Church, 1216 West 8th Street in Davenport. 
Sharon Ray Tang was born on July 12, 1948, to Raymond Waddell and Esther Waddell Stride in Fairfield. She graduated from West High School in 1966. On June 19, 1965, she was united in marriage to Robert Bob Tang, and they had two children. Sharon retired from Klockau and McCarthy, where she worked as a paralegal. Sharon enjoyed going to concerts at Rhythm City. She also loved spending time in her yard planting flowers and displaying yard decorations. Her greatest pride were her children and grandchildren. She loved her golden retrievers. In lieu of flowers, the family asked that memorials be made to the Humane Society of Scott County. Those left to celebrate her memory are daughters Melissa, Ben, Treacle, and Michelle Cook, grandchildren Austin Andrews, Morgan Beatty, and Megan Andrews, and one sibling, John Waddell. She was preceded in death by her parents, her husband of 54 years, Robert Tank, and her brothers, Raymond Waddell, Jr., and Jean Waddell. Online condolences can be made to com. Continuing on with the obituaries, uh, Dennis Denny Meyer, funeral services for Dennis Denny Meyer, age 80, of East Moline, Illinois, will take place at 11 a.m. Saturday, March the 2nd, at St. Anne Catholic Church, East Moline. Burial will be at St. Mary's Cemetery in East Moline. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Friday, March the 1st at the Van Ho Funeral Home, East Moline, where a rosary will be recited at 3 p.m. Mr. Meyer passed away on Saturday, February the 24th at Hope Creek Nursing and Rehab in East Moline. Denny was born November the 4th, 1943 in Hibbing, Minnesota, the son of John and Marion Davis Meyer. He married Rosalie Rosie Carmack, October the 26, 1963, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in East Moline. Denny was a 1961 graduate of United Township High School in East Moline. After high school, he served an electrical apprenticeship with IBEW Local 145. In 1972, he became a co-owner of Farlow Electric Company, Inc., and M&K Realty, East Moline. He served as president of the Quad Cities chapter of the National Electrical Contractors Association for 12 years. Denny was a longtime member of St. Anne Catholic Church, Midwest Corvette Club, and the Alleman Booster Club. Family was always first to Denny, especially his love for his grandkids. Known as the original MacGyver, he could fix anything. He had a passion for all things with wheels, from little red wagons to Corvettes. His interests included snowmobiling with the boys, motorsports, and NASCAR racing. He attended the Indianapolis 500 time trials for 30-plus years. Denny also enjoyed traveling with Rosie, camping, and the New York Yankees. In addition, he would like to thank the caregivers and therapists at Hope Creek and niece Kelly Wilson for their compassionate care. In lieu of flowers and gifts, memorial may be made to St. Anne Parish or Genesis Rocksteady Boxing Parkinson's program. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.vanho.org. 
H-O-E.com. And finally, Kathleen Carter, age 73, of Davenport, Iowa, died at the Masonic Village on February 24th, 2024. She was born in Denver on January 12th, 1951, to Frank and Jane Finnip Carter, and was one of 12 children. After her mother's death, her father married Janet Roberts, and three more children joined the family. Kathleen studied deaf education at Adams State University and the University of Northern Colorado. She later obtained a master's degree in counselor education from Western Illinois University and worked in the Davenport and Bentendorf schools. Kathleen married Ted Peterschmidt in 1973 and raised two sons, Frank, Pete Peterschmidt, and Dante Peterschmidt. She later married her soulmate, David Harvey, in 2007. Kathleen was an advocate of a healthy mind, body, and spirit, which was evidenced by many interests, including gardening, skiing, scuba diving, hiking, kayaking, camping, and teaching yoga. She was part of a Quad City drum circle, the Women of Perpetual Biking, and several book clubs. Kathleen was a proponent of the disadvantaged and our environment. She was an excellent cook and hosted the infamous Uncle Kunkel parties for many years. She was not an excellent diver, driver. She was a member of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of the Quad Cities, where the service will be held at a later date. She will be greatly missed, but thousands of memories will make us smile. This is a reminder that you are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now back to Patty. Now, the opinion page today is all cartoons, political cartoons, and I'm going to attempt to um, elucidate those. There is a woman sitting at a desk and there's a micro, uh, excuse me, a microscope sitting on the table and she's looking into the eyepiece. Across from her on the wall, there's a sign that says Alabama. And then on the desk in front of her is a little jar that says frozen embryo. And she says, what is it like to be considered a person? And then there's another cartoon. There's an hourglass, and in the top is a wide view of Donald Trump's head and the piece that goes down from the top that the sand would run into is filled up with dollars. And then one more. There's a man in a hallway And he's saying, has anyone seen my car keys? Now, this is kind of resembling Donald, uh, excuse me, uh, Joe Biden. And uh, he's by the garage and at the garage door. And in the garage, there's a box sitting next to the front of a car. And on the top of the box, it says, top secret, Joe Biden. And then on the top of the box, there is a set of keys. One more I'll do. There's a picture of somebody who's obviously uh, Vladimir Putin, and he's sitting on top of a pile of bodies. Across the pile is written dissidents. 
and Putin is saying, I'm holding the high ground against Western decadence. Very good job, Patty. Let's read another local article before we move on to sports. Moline sets traffic change. It's written by Grace Kinnicutt of the Quad City Times. Beginning March 11th, traffic changes will take effect at 41st Street and John Deere Road. Traffic traveling on 41st Street and approaching John Deere Road from either direction will no longer be allowed to turn on red for right-hand turns, the Moline Police Department said in a Monday press release. A public education campaign began Monday to include LED message boards, media advisories, and social media alerts on city platforms. According to data provided by Moline Police, there has been a 140% increase in traffic crashes at this intersection. In the past two years, there have been 153 traffic crashes, with 16% occurring in the west turn lane of southbound 41st Street and 42% occurring in the east turn lane of northbound 41st Street. During a review process with local and state officials, it was determined that a majority of incidents were rear-end crashes occurring in the right turn lanes. Moline police officials requested Moline's traffic engineering department review traffic patterns at the intersection and see if improvements could be made for safety. In December 2023, the police department, Illinois State Police, Illinois Department of Transportation, and the city's traffic engineering department met to review data and make suggestions, the release said. In Illinois, state law allows right turns on red unless signs are posted at the location prohibiting it. The state transportation department has primary jurisdiction over John Deere since it is a state highway. The city was authorized by IDOT after the review process to prohibit right turns on red. In the review process, those incidents had the, traf had the trailing car looking over their left shoulder to see approaching traffic and rear-ended the lead car. Trailing cars thought the car in front of them had already turned. Both IDOT and the City of Moline hope the change to the traffic pattern will reduce traffic crashes and enhance safety at the intersection. An annual auto show set for weekend. This is written by Thomas Geyer of the Quad City Times. The 30th annual Quad City Regional Auto Show will be held Friday through Sunday at the Bend XPO Center in Mo East Moline. More than 150 vehicles from 23 manufacturers will be on display, including electric vehicles with EV product specialists on hand to take questions. Each day will feature the Toyota NASCAR Simulator, Corvette models from the Midwest Corvette Car Club, a military tribute exhibit, a bounce house for the kids, and MG models from the Quad City British Auto Club. Additionally, Subaru will be hosting hot uh, hosting dog adoptions as part of the company's Subaru Loves Pets campaign. There also will be therapy dogs from noon to 4 p.m. Saturday will feature a magic show, face painting, and balloons from noon to 3 p.m. Sunday is 101.3 KISS Family Day with activities that include discussions with Ni Niabi Zoo, Dreams Come True Princesses from noon to 4 p.m., Lego building, science experiments from noon to 3 p.m., 
a coloring contest, balloon artists from 1 to 3 p.m., face painting from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., and cookies and milk for kids from noon to 3 p.m. Miss Illinois Jessica Tilton will be on hand for the meet and greet from noon to 4 p.m. Sunday. Ford and Subaru will have test drives each day. Subaru will have test drives from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Friday and Saturday and 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Ford will have test drives from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Friday and Saturday and 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Sunday. New at this year's show will be brand new semi-tractors. On display will be the 2024 Peterbilt 579 Ultra Loft Epic Package in legendary silver and the 2024 Peterbilt Viper Red. Electric cards will include the Ionic and Kona by Hyundai, Subaru Solterra, Volvo XC40, Cadillac Lyric, Mercedes EQE350, Volkswagen ID4, and Audi e-tron. Cousins Maine Lobster also will be there from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, serving up food including Maine Rolls, Connecticut Rolls, and Lobster Bisque. Tickets are $10 for people ages 13 to 61, $5 for senior citizens ages 62 and over, $5 for children ages 7 to 12, children ages 6 and under are free. Bend Expo is located at 922 Mississippi Parkway, East Moline. This is a cashless show. Only debit and credit cards will be accepted for ticket purchase. Let's move on to the sports now. NFL Chicago Bears. Much of upcoming draft hinges on QB decision. Bears still deciding about Fields' future. Written for us by Michael Marrow. He's AP sports writer. Indianapolis. Chicago Bears coach Matt Eberflus already endured one round of the Justin Fields debate. He's hoping for everyone's sake the second round ends soon. The man who has stood in Fields' corner the past two seasons as others argued about whether to keep Fields or start over with a new quarterback was answering those same old questions about the number one overall pick again Tuesday at the NFL's annual scouting combine. We have no big news for you today. We're going through the process, Everflus said, as the league's coaches and general managers took center stage in Indianapolis. If Justin's coming back, we'll have a plan in place for that. If we have a new quarterback, we'll have a plan in place for that. Chicago's decision is sure to make ripples on the roster and perhaps around a league that places premium value on quarterbacks. With what some consider a deep quarterback class, including three who would come off the board immediately in April, the teams holding those first three picks could lead to new starters or plenty of trade possibilities. And the Bears are right at the top, just as they were last year when they had the number one pick and fields. Eventually, they dealt the pick to Carolina for receiver D.J. Moore and four picks, including the one that put them back at number one this year. Surely they could do it all over again. But after missing the playoffs in each of Fields' first three seasons and no postseason 
wins since the 2010 season, the organization recognizes there's a clamoring for change in the fan base. It's not just the fans who are getting anxious, though. Phil said last week on a podcast that he wanted to stay in Chicago, though he also wanted the debate to end. So Tuesday, General Manager Ryan Poles told Bears reporters he would move as quickly as possible. Then the next dominoes may fall. Washington, picked at number two, thought Sam Howell, a fifth-round pick two years ago, might be a franchise quarterback. Instead, he's gone 5-13 as a starter, has as many TD passes as interceptions, 22, and is now on a franchise with a new owner, a new general manager, and a new coach looking to take the commanders in a new direction. New England, at number three, is still searching for Tom Brady's successor after using a first-round pick on Mac Jones in 2021 and a fourth-rounder on Bailey Zapp in 2022. Both have started, but neither has had great success. I'd say there are a lot of options on the table, Patriots general manager Elliot Wolf said. Arizona has the number four slot, and there have been speculation Kyler Murray could also be available since the number one overall pick and 2019 AP Offensive Rookie of the Year has produced just one winning season in five years. But Cardinals GM Monty Ossenfort downplayed that possibility Tuesday by saying Arizona was in an ideal place since it already has its starting quarterback on the roster. The way Kyler came back at the end of the year, it gave us all a lot of confidence, Austin Fort said. The way the offense hit its stride, running the football, throwing the football, and just getting Kyler's health back to a point where he can use his legs, use his arm, do the things we're accustomed to seeing. Knowing Kyler is where he's at, not uh, knowing Kyler is where he's at, not only where he's at, but he's getting better and seeing him work in progress is exciting. Who else may want a new quarterback? Some fans in Atlanta, New York, and Pittsburgh think the Falcons, Giants, and Steelers need to move on from Desmond Ritter, Daniel Jones, and Kenny Pickett, respectively. Jones is rehabbing from a torn anterior cruciate ligament in his right knee, and none of those franchises seem ready for a big change at QB just yet. I have faith in Daniel, Giants GM John Schoen said. I have faith in Daniel as our starting quarterback. In case you uh, did not tune in to the Des Moines Register, I'll go over the sports on television today. College basketball, men's college basketball, 5.30 p.m., Rhode Island at VCU on CBS Sports Network. Also at 5.30 p.m., it's Missouri at Florida on the SEC Network. At 6 p.m. on ACC Network, it's Louisville at Duke. And the Big Ten Network, it's Northwestern at Maryland at 6 p.m. And on ESPN2 at 6 p.m., it's Auburn at Tennessee. 6 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Furman at Western Carolina. 6 p.m. on FS1, it's Providence at Marquette. 6 p.m. on FS2, it's DePaul at Xavier. 7 p.m. on the Pac-12 Network, California at Colorado. 7.30 p.m. on CBS Sports Network, it's St. John's at Butler. 
7.30 p.m. on the SEC Network at South Carolina at Texas A&M. At 8 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Minnesota at Illinois. 8 p.m. on ESPN2, Alabama at Mississippi. 8 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Virginia at Boston College. And 8 p.m. on FS1, it's Seton Hall at Creighton. 9 p.m. on the Pac-12 Network, it's Arizona at Arizona State. And at 10 p.m. on FS1, it's Oregon State at Oregon. College women's basketball, 6 p.m., Michigan at Ohio State on Peacock. And at 8 p.m., Iowa at Minnesota on Peacock. And at 10 p.m., college women's basketball, we've got Portland at Gonzaga on ESPNU. National Basketball Association on ESPN at 6.40 p.m., it's New Orleans at Indiana. At 7 p.m. on the NBC Sports Channel, it's uh, Cleveland at Chicago. And at 9 p.m. on ESPN, the Los Angeles Lakers at the L.A. Clippers. And in NHL on TNT at 7.30 p.m., we've got St. Louis at Edmonton. We'll read a couple short uh, local briefs here. First, Moran and Resup selected. Quad City Storm goalies Brent Moran and Kevin Ressup have been named the SPHL Co-Players of the Week, combining for a 1.6 goals against average and a .958 save percentage. The tandem led the Storm to their first ever three-game sweep last weekend. Moran is tied for the league lead in shutouts with two and is fourth in the SPHL in wins with 14. Resup's 27 wins are most in team history. The Storm face Evansville at the Ford Center on Friday and Saturday starting at 7 both nights. Next, Cooter honored. Iowa freshman Ben Cooter has been named the Big Ten Wrestler of the Week for the first time ever in his career. The Iowa City native upset the 11th ranked heavyweight in the country on Sunday, Oklahoma State's Connor Doucette. 5 to 1 helping the Hawkeyes land number 2 Oklahoma hand number 2 Oklahoma State its first loss of the season 22 to 9 Cooter is the second Hawkeye to earn Big 10 Wrestler of the Week honors this season joining Gabe Arnold on November the 29th Iowa returns to action on March 9th through 10 at the Big 10 Championships in College Park Maryland and Iowa's hosting College Game Day ESPN's College Game Day will broadcast live on Sunday from 10 to 11 a.m. before the sixth-ranked Hawkeyes play host to the number two Iowa State women. Or excuse me, Ohio State women. Big difference there. Um, Ellie Duncan, a. Andra, Andrea Carter, Rebecca Lobo, Carolyn Peck, and Holly Rowe from ESPN will host the show, which will be at Carver Hawkeye Arena for the second year in a row. The arena door is open to ticketed fans for the game at 9 a.m. And Pleasant Valley's Young gets pitching win for Iowa. Pleasant Valley's Jack Young earned the win in relief as Iowa defeated Northern Illinois 14-6 on Tuesday at Duane Banks Field. This, of course, is the baseball team. Young, the second of Iowa, 10 Iowa pitchers, fired one and one-third scoreless innings to claim his first victory for the 4-4 four and four Hawkeyes. Young struck out three batters, allowing one hit and a walk. 
Sam Peterson went two for three for Iowa, including his third home run of the season as Iowa banged out 16 hits. Davis Kopp homered and drove in four. Next up, the Hawkeyes head to Oxford, Mississippi for a three-game series beginning Friday against Ole Miss. BYU upends number seven, Kansas. <coughs> Excuse me. A Jayhawks win streak on home floor ends. Written for us by the Associated Press, Lawrence, Kansas. Dalen Hall and Jake Jackson Robinson scored 18 points apiece as BYU rallied from a 12 point deficit to beat seventh ranked Kansas 76 68 on Tuesday night, ending the Jayhawks' 19 game home winning streak. The Cougars took a 66-63 lead when Noah Waterman drained a three-pointer with 2.43 left. Hunter Dickinson answered with a three for Kansas, but Robinson hit two free throws and Hall drained another three, sending BYU to a win in its first trip to storied Allen Fieldhouse since December 1971. And Houston, uh, number one Houston, uh, 67, and Cincinnati, 59. L.J. Cryer scored 22 points. Juwan Roberts added 15. And the Cougars won their sixth straight game by beating the Bearcats, 6-12, 5-10. One day after ascending to number one in the AP Top 25 for the first time this season, Houston extended its conference lead to one and a half games over Iowa State. They've won 21 consecutive home games, the longest active streak in the nation. Victor... Sorry to cut you off, Patty, but we're running out of time. So that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone has been Patty Daniels. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.